Hey, welcome to another edition of On Leadership. I'm Todd Wilson, the co-founder of Exponential, and uh, I'm with Sean Lovejoy, the uh, founder of Courage to Lead. Good to be back with you, Sean. Hey, man. So great to be with you. It seems like it's been forever almost uh, that, that, that since we've been together. So good to see you. Well, summer has happened and a lot of pastors are recreating the summer and taking some downtime and going to the beach in the mountains and good for them. Intensity followed by rest. It's a good thing. So speaking of uh, beach and ocean and water, you've recently been there, I think. Yeah, I I take for 20 years, I've taken two weeks off starting Memorial Day. So we always do like a a week at the beach. There's a difference between a vacation and a family outing. You understand that concept. And and then like a week of staycation where we where we rest. So um, that's been that was last week. And then you're back in the saddle full. So on. what what does rest mean? I, th- I think here coming up, we're going to actually do a session yes. on this whole idea of rest. But as a precursor to that, just this idea of Sean Lovejoy and family going on vacation, and you and family. I'm assuming you now have a married daughter, and yeah. I mean you got a bunch of different dynamics. So when when you put the words rest and vacation together with being away with your family, in, in all seriousness, like what's that look like for you? Maybe it encourages dads out there today. You know, it's it's uh, when you're the dad and the husband, like you got to keep everybody happy and everyone entertained. That's your job, you know, and you might get a brownie point. You might not. They always expire at midnight. I tell my family, it seems so every day you start out in the hole and you've got to earn a brownie point that day by <clears throat> creating a great experience for everybody. So I take that burden on my shoulder and. We try to keep everybody entertained. We swam with dolphins this year. That was amazing. Wild dolphins, like jumped off the boat and swam with wild dolphins. It was really cool. So do you do you actually take your phone with you, leave it on? Shut I off? do. Yeah, maybe that gives guys permission to. We're going to talk a lot about this. You and I have decided yeah. we're going to do a future show on yeah. rest, the values of sabbaticals, the pros and cons, the do's and the don'ts. We're we're talking about getting Pete Scazzaro in that conversation if, if if the calendar allows and schedules align to just talk about all that. But for me, like it, it was always terrible to me. I said unplug from all electronics and all of that. Well, I'm dreading going home because I know I've got 27,000 phone calls, voicemails, emails that I've got. You know, I'm going to be backlogged. So I'd rather get up each day, check and see if anything's on fire or anything burning down, you know, let my assistant to let me know if there's an emergency she thinks I need. I don't want to come home and get surprised and ruin my whole vacation. So I actually like staying tuned in 5%, you know, but by 7, 7.30 every day, 8 o'clock, be ready to go with the family. That's the, you know, what, what about you guys when you've traveled in the past with your kids? How, how did you do that? You know, it's been hit or miss. I've I've tried in the more recent years not to be doing work. Uh, you know, I I'd say farther back I wasn't as good at it. Uh, definitely slowed down pace on work years ago. Uh, now I really do try to get away when I get away. So the you know, we ought to do on. a future show. I've talked about this. Like you've done this well with Terry and Brooks and others. Like having great admin help that you trust that's high capacity, high character, you've empowered well, and all that really helps. I'll say that. Mm. It, if you've got someone that you know and you trust can speak on your behalf and be a be a, a guard 
if you will, and, and, and you trust to bring the difficult situations to you, <laughs> it allows you to take a chill pill easier, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, how about this, Sean? Today, we're talking about passion. Uh, I'm going to have one more question about the beach here. So oftentimes at the beach, we don't dwell on all the negatives and think about negatives, but the beach trips and the getaway trips are a way to, to be refreshed on the things we're most passionate about. So just as a segue into talking about passion, as you're coming off vacation here, if you were articulating, you know, kind of a practice, not the definition, but bringing it to life and reality of what, what are some things you're passionate about, like that, that are affirmed from being away on, on break sort of thing? So I'm passionate about college football. <laughs> I'm passionate about college football. Uh, I'm passionate about the university. Can I just, can I just put a timeout before you even move on on that? I would say you're passionate about one college football team. I don't know how passionate you are about football as much as you are one college football team, but go ahead. Yeah. So, so, so how do you know somebody's passionate about something? What, you know, when you get them talking about it, their eyes light up, you know? And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about um, animals you know this. Maybe we'll get into that story later. I don't open that can of worms yet. <laughs> and um, I, I'm 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 passionate about you know my time away with my family. So I'm passionate about fishing. You know, I always get concerned about pastors when they say, "Well, ministry is my hobby," and I'm like, "You need counseling for that." <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but there ought to be some things you're passionate about outside of like what you do during the work week. I really do believe that. Um, it, it actually makes you more relatable you know, to other people. So what about you? Well, I, uh, you know, I, the thing that energizes me the most are obviously futuristic things, opportunity mm-hmm. things. So yeah. I, I, if the idea is what do you come to life about, uh, you know, things that have to do with the future strategy for the future, uh, I'm understanding more and more, you know, just sort of on the, not as a, to make a living, but like the life planning process with people, um, just facilitating that process um, uh, is is really something that brings me to life. And so I, I realized this past week I was talking to uh, a leader called me about the life planning process and that whole what you're talking about, the twinkle in the eye, the kind of leaning forward in your seat, the voice getting elevated. I realized partway through this conversation, man, I am really passionate about the life planning process. Like it's a passion sort of thing. So I do think the way it it brings you to life is a is a thing. Um, Brooks is reminding me right now that uh, you know I I always say that my dream in life is what I want to do someday is drive a tractor. And uh, I you know, the link to what we're talking about is when I'm riding on a tractor, Sean. It's when the most kind of futuristic thinking and strategic things happen. So um, I don't know. I'd say those are the the things outside of uh, family and, and so forth. So having just become a grandfather, it's uh, I, I, I've always said, I don't ever plan to retire. I want to work till I can't work anymore. And uh, I think something happens when you become a grandfather, it's uh, uh, maybe I could see some semi-retirement someday. <laughs> you know that's coming for me this year. Yes, I do. Congratulations, yes. by the way. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It'll change a whole lot. So, 
Yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to be the best papa ever. Yeah. Well, look, let's jump in. And before we do, we want to encourage anyone watching. Uh, we're going to try to integrate Q&A. And so if you've got questions or feedback, uh, put those into the chat while we're going and we'll do our best to get to the comments that are coming in or questions that are coming in. So, Sean, let's open this way. Um, I No pun intended, but I, when I think of Sean Lovejoy and this idea of passion, I, in some ways, passion is a passion of Sean Lovejoy. And, and I know that amongst all the leadership topics, amongst all the things out there that you do in coaching and important things and everything, uh, you really elevate this, the importance of this passion thing. So why don't you just start off giving us a little bit of the, that backstory, if you would, why you're so passionate about passion? Well, I actually don't think it comes natural for me. You know, I actually think I'm more of a melancholic type of personality. Uh, a lot of people are surprised to, to know and learn that I'm a, naturally a glass half-empty half person. And, and I have to work on, you know, the fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> That's part of my daily spiritual process. I start fully filled at the beginning of the day and then run it to empty by the end of the day. And then I start over and all of that because the passion leaks out of me like leaks everybody else. You know, a big part of the book, Be Mean About the Vision, you're very familiar with, was the fact that Bill Hybels was the first person I ever heard say it. He probably got it from somebody else, you know, that vision leaks, you know, and it leaks out of leaders the fastest, I think, you know, and it happens to me, happens to others. But I see it happening in churches, you know, they're, they're thoroughly, you know, um, true to their doctrine, but it's like I see dead people. You know, and I've spent time with those staffs where you you walk in and you can just tell, man, it's a it's not a fun place to be. In fact, looking at all these moral failures, a.k.a. Bill Hybels and others, I would say, Todd, one of the uh, ingredients they all have in common. A lot of these uh, public, you know, kind of toppling leaders is they had a culture of fear, you know, rather than a culture of joy and freedom, you know, surrounding the senior leadership. Everybody was sort of timid and, and afraid, you know, to talk about real stuff versus just, you know, it being a free culture and liberating culture and fun culture and life-giving culture. And so we talk about, you know, the gears of growth at Curse culture team and systems. And a lot of guys think if they get the silver bullet from this church or this conference and they sing the right songs and they preach the right messages, you know, that people will come and they're not coming and they don't know why. And I think a lot of churches have a culture issue. They have, they, they have a culture issue. If, if you would, Sean, I want to have you press in a little bit um, within the context of passion now. Um, and, and whether we you know, just generically say one of these leaders that's had a moral failure or something, and, and, and we don't have to, you know, just generically, this idea of the culture of fear versus a culture of joy. Um. I think the world might look at many leaders, even that create a culture of fear and say they're very passionate leaders. So how do we unpack a little bit this culture of fear versus the culture of joy kind of idea and sure. how that fits into passion since passion can, uh, you know, Steve, Steve Jobs was a very, very passionate person, but you hear some of the cultural stories of, 
of things inside the organization. And I, I don't think you'd describe it as a culture of joy. Sure. So. Well, same was through 2000 years ago. You know, the Pharisees were very passionate, you know, zealous for the law. And then Jesus comes along and he's teaching out of the same book. And thousands of people begin to leave the teachings of the Pharisees and flock to his teachings and you're like, why? Because they, they, they were teaching the same sermons. You know, his first sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That wasn't a deep message. Jeremiah had preached that. You know, they're leaning up on the edge of their chairs. What's the most important commandment, Jesus? And he gives them one that Moses gave them thousands of years ago. So it wasn't like he was teaching some deep new truth that no one had ever heard before. He was teaching the same teachings the zealous Pharisees were teaching. They were passionate. But Matthew 7, 29 says he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Man, I just think there's a lot there we ought to be talking about in ministry circles that we're not talking about. Mm-hmm. Why? And honestly, that's a dynamic I see happening thousands of years later. People are leaving the teachings. Nothing really wrong with their doctrine of these churches and flocking to these churches, teaching out of the same book, both sort of displaying a different type of energy and enthusiasm. But there's a lot of, there is a lot of sheep swapping that goes on out there. But frankly, people, you know, are feel like they're spiritually starving in some of these churches and are desperately longing for, for authority, for conviction, for a sense of urgency you know, for, for passion. And that's kind of what Jesus brought 2000 years ago. He brought a hope. He brought an energy. He brought an enthusiasm. He brought a clarity of vision that the other leaders, for whatever reason, weren't able to communicate. And that's why he started a movement, you know? And so to be like Jesus is, is to bring that kind of passion and authority to the table. I really do believe. And I, this idea, let's uh, press into authority even. At at some point, you and I are going to do probably an entire session on authority. Um, I I think what I hear you saying, I just want to make sure I'm getting it right, is... And you can disagree with me if you want to be wrong, but... I I might before we're done. I just want to make sure I understand first, and then we'll see. The uh, If leaders have authority, there's different kinds of authority, but leaders have authority... And that idea of the authority that leaders have, how we exercise the, the authority, and there's different ways to exercise it. I think what you're saying, if I can link it to the fear versus joy culture, you can exercise authority in a way that produces a bunch of different things, including a fear-based culture. You can exercise it in a way that produces things like the fruits of the spirit. And is, is that the distinction that you're making here when you talk about the different culture, a culture of fear versus a culture of joy that it's flowing out of this idea of how authority is exercised. Yeah, but even joy probably is too, you know, a little bit too narrow way to define it, even though I think that's a component of it. And we'll talk about that later, our facet of it. Ian Bounds, you know, in the power of prayer and other places called it unction. This divine zeal that only the spirit can provide, he called it. So it's not just about being glib you know, either and always having a smile on your face, you know, but it's, it, it's something that, by the way, that you can't fabric, fabricate, you can't fake. I think people are able to see through that 
that hype it up mentality. I fell prey to that early on as a church planner, trying to up, up hype the previous Sunday, you know, and that, that treadmill gets old really fast, you know, so it's, it really is, it comes out of a, a feeling of the Holy spirit and, and, and a zeal and passion to me, when they talk about Jesus teaching as one who had authority, there was something about the tone of his voice, a look in his eyes, his body language, you know, that said, this guy may be crazy, but like he's smoking what he's selling. Can I say that on the exponential um, <laughs> hub here? Like, like this guy, they may not be fully convinced that crowd over there. You know, I'm not sure they, they, they be- really, really believe what they're teaching or live it out. But this guy, this guy is totally convinced that what he is saying is the gospel, you know, and people were drawn and magnetized, mm-hmm. you know, by that. And it's, it's a dynamic I see happen today with preaching and, and worship environments and, you know, all of that. It's, it's that it factor that Craig Groeschel began to talk about 20 years ago, that mm-hmm. churches like his just possess, mm-hmm. you know, I've told Craig, I'm not wowed by the depth of your messages, yeah, <laughs> you know, and I wouldn't characterize him as a person who walks around with this glib joy on his face all the time. He's an intense guy, you know, but passion, yeah. you know, conviction, authority when he speaks, that's part of that it factor, yeah. you know, that's, that's led to the growth of their church. I'm as we start to get in and unpack, sort of the facets or dimensions of pa- of passion, just kind of unpacking what passion is and what its parts are. You know how I am. I, I like to have mental models or physical pictures of things. So I'm as a segue in and highlighting the importance of the why of passion. Here's the picture I'm using in my mind. And I need you to push back if I've, if, if you, if you're coming at it from a different angle. So what I've got on my page right now is, is authority on the, all leaders have some form of authority. Authority is, you know, from, from us kind of that, or, you know, wherever it comes, it's there. Passion, then I've got it kind of drawn out to the side of authority. And it is either a magnifier of things or a contractor of things and hold that thought and projecting onto the culture of the organization that there's authority. And then when you layer passion on top of it, the passion influence the culture, but the passion is almost like a dimmer switch. Like you, you can have an organization and a leader that have no passion. So the authority gets muted to impacting the culture of the organization, or it impacts it in a way that the passion isn't really there. Or you can, you can have passion amplified onto the culture. And if I come back to the authority part, there's healthy and unhealthy authority. So now at the root of the, how you're playing out the authority is either being amplified in a negative way or a positive way through the passion that you've got. I don't know if that made any sense or not. No, it does to me. It does to me a lot. And going back to the, going back to Jesus and the Pharisees, I mean, they had a recognized, the Pharisees had a recognized public authority, you know, but Jesus had like a moral authority. He had no public authority. Ordaining of authority by any central political or religious figure, but yet he had more authority than the Pharisees. And I see some of these young pastors throw their weight around as if everybody's supposed to do what they say just because they're the head guy. 
Hmm. And that leadership's influence. And just because you're the head guy doesn't give, mean you have the most influence in your church. It doesn't. You know, the person with the most influence is leading. And so we, we've, we've got to earn the right, you know, by the way we live and the way we lead to it's, it's a moral authority, you know, that we lead by that's really drawn out of our, uh, the marrow of our bones that comes with a conviction and a calling that, you know, people say he might be crazy, but like, he really believes this. <laughs> and that makes me want to be par- a part of this. Uh, it's, it's powerful. Hmm. Well, Sean, you've uh, you've actually written about you know five different facets of passion, and I, I like these, so I'm going to use them sort of as a framework for our conversation here. Um, the first dimension that you've talked about, or or facet of uh, of passion, is vision. And so let's uh, let's just unpack a little bit. And again, this is to help bring definition to passion. So, where does vision fit in the passion equation? Well, let's go back you know, nearly 20 years ago now to the time when I was leading my own conference and somebody came backstage and said, there's this guy named, looks like George Costanza, trying to put flyers in a chair for this new conference, you know, he's wanting to start. And I said, well, let me meet him. You know, who is he? (laughs) You know, and I don't know if he smiled that day, but, uh, but, but you were sure passionate about this thing. And within a few years, you had given face and 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 attract Bill really fostered a movement, you know, because you had a vision. You had nothing else, by the way, <laughs> early on, right? Yep. Nothing else. You're just like, we we're going to affect the face and the fashion of church planting in North America with this conference. And you know, where there is no vision, people perish. You know, things and people die. That means the opposite is also true. Where there is a vision, man, there's vitality and it's fresh and it's attractive and it's life-giving and people are attracted to it, you know. And I was attracted to you because of, in a manly, of course, sense kind of way, um, I, because you had a you had a vision that was big, and profound. And I could tell by looking in your eyes, you really believe the impossible was possible. And look at where we are today. You know, so I, you, you've lived that, you know, and I have too. Um, you know, where people rip it off, there's too many copycat and cookie cutter churches. I talk about that and be mean about the vision. And if you borrow not just ideas and principles and maybe some processes, you borrow somebody else's vision. It's, it's, it's really, does it come out of your story? Hmm. You know, your vision for exponential, it came out of your story, your brokenness, you know, over the church planting movement, in North America and reaching the lost and church planters staying sane, centered and married and all of that. And, you know, that's why we partnered together years ago. So it does begin. And I say, I say, and be mean about vision. We forget why we do what we do. We'll eventually lose our passion and it's easy to do in ministry. And would you say in this case, Sean, if if I'm pressing into vision of what you just said, I mean, within vision, there's there's a size component. How big is the vision? There's a there's an importance dimension, like how important is this? Which it, it might not be a huge vision, but it's still very important. And then there's a 
compelling dimension, like how compelling, and there's an urgency dimension. Like when you're talking about vision in this context, you're talking about all the above, how big it is, how important it is, how compelling it is, how urgent it is, or are any of those dimensions even more important within vision? I think they're related. You know, to me, the, the vision is the why. The vision is the why. And people on our teams in our church, both lay and paid, um, they forget why they're doing what they're doing as well. I think it's one of the fundamental things you got to do as a ministry leader is reminding them why we're doing what we're doing. And if we're not constantly keeping the big picture in front of them, they'll burn out. Yeah. You know? And in some ways, what I'm hearing you describe, and we start with this idea of vision, is it, it is the, I'll say the gong we're banging or the sound we're trumpeting. And in the absence of sounding a loud trumpet in a certain way, it's just noise. Whatever your passion's turning into is just noise in a lot of directions if it's not focused on a trumpet call kind of thing. Very that- true. Very true. Yeah. And there is a difference. Yeah. There's a difference. Okay. We'll talk about focus later. <laughs> All right. Um, second facet that you talk about is pace. And I'm, I'm assuming that's, that's the pace of the leader, speed of the leader, speed of the team. So unpack the pace idea a little bit for us. What's the pace of the culture? You know, I mean, I, in the early church, they talked so much about the fact that the days were near, and that Jesus was coming back. You know, there, there, there was an urgency to the gospel message because they literally believed Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. They had a lot to do. Very little time to do it. So it was kind of frenetic all the time. I mean, it was that, 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 that there was this urgency, not a false urgency, a real urgency that, well, man, man, the fields are ripe unto harvest. Jesus is coming back. We got work to do. Man, let's go. You know, and I think sometimes in a prosperous Western culture, you know, we lose sight of that, you know, and um, we're not, we don't move with such a great sense of urgency. And I, I tell guys, we, we got to get that fixed by this Sunday. We got to get that fixed by this Sunday. Like people are going to come to our church, giving Jesus and the church one more shot. We don't have three months to figure this out. That we got to get figured out by this Sunday because that family and their eternal destiny is worth it to me. You know, I would talk like that to our team, you know, not in a false urgency kind of way. You can't pull that trump card too many times. But I I think, you know, guys that move with a sense of urgency and and frankly, a a sense of a a faster pace and pushing people outside their comfort zones, I think is important, you know, and living in that rhythm between intensity and rest, intensity and rest, intensity and rest. Like I talked about at the outset on vacation, you can't just be pedal to the metal all the time because that's numbness by frequency too. But there's, there's got, there's some intense seasons of ministry, you know, and man, we got to go. Would you say, is it safe to say we're going to go through all these facets, but what, what's hitting me right now, Sean, is this is a pretty big potential tyranny of the oar. I mean, there's a balancing act that needs to be an and here. This idea of urgency, and do you really have passion without a sense of urgency? But then there's this balancing act of 
and, you know, rhythm and pacing yourself. And it's so easy in ministry to, you know, to just everything's urgent all of a sudden. hundred percent. You know, John Cotter in his book called Creating a Sense of Urgency talks about leaders who maintain a false sense of urgency. They just sort of act manic all the time. They're control freaks. And in the absence of really knowing what to do in the big picture, <laughs> they just meddle and just turn things upside down and micromanage and, you know, run everybody in the ground when that, that's, that's really a pseudo sense of urgency, a false sense of urgency. You know, what we're really talking about is a sense of urgency that's driven by the fact that, man, man, eternal things are in, in the balance and we've got a lot to do and this is worth giving our lives to and, hey, come die with us, you know, kind of thing. At the same time, realizing that there are see, I tell guys that we're, we're called to be fishers of men and women, but the fish aren't always schooling. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I don't like the fish. I like the fish when they're, I like to catch fish, mm. you know, so I like to fish when they're schooling. Uh, you know, and the same can be true in the church. There are seasons of the year where you need to be more intense because the church swells. And there are seasons of the year people tend to check out churches and there are seasons when they don't. And you can ebb and flow in seasons of intensity and seasons of rest with your preaching calendar, your worship calendar, you know, the real emphasis, you can back off, you can press in and, and not burn everybody out. So I would say both ends of the pace are really important. Is there, when you think about passion in all five facets, are there, are there any other, you know, in this tyranny, the or genius in the end kind of pitting one against the other, are there any other, balancing acts that are as significant as this one? Oh, I would say the next one is just as important, you know, because the third facet is just zeal. You know, Romans 12, 11 says, yep. never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual server, fervor serving the Lord. That word lacking can also mean slothful. Hmm. The ESV says, do not be slothful, you know, in zeal. But we all know in ministry, you can, we all know of a friend, you know, who's burned out because they never shut it down, mm. you know, and they were a workaholic, you know, like I was the first few years in ministry. So once again, you know, you've got attention here, you know, to be zealous. And honestly, I found some younger ministry leaders, like they need to know a little bit more about intensity, learn a little bit more about intensity. Yep. <laughs> They need a little bit stronger work ethic, and some of us need to learn how to shut down our minds, shut down our souls, shut it off, rest, yeah. how to do that in rhythm, you know, all of that. But he talks about fervor. When I think about fervor, I think about energy. You know, do we bring energy to the meeting? Do we recognize that we're setting the temperature in the room and during the week with our staff? That's where it starts. You know, and on Sundays, do we bring energy in the room or do we suck the energy out of the room? You know, is it, oh, me or is it, oh, Todd, you know, when 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 Todd comes around or calls me or texts me, it's 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 bringing that energy, that enthusiasm, you know, to the room genuinely in a, in a genuine kind of, kind of nature, because we love what we do. Anybody that knows you knows, man, like you have a zeal for multiplication. 
you have, you, as long as I've ever known you, you know, you've had a zeal for churches being multiple, and it's contagious. It's contagious. You've built this huge thing, but how empty it would be if you were just building conferences, hmm. just building events. Hmm. You know, Terry Saliba would not have been with you for 20 years if you were just doing events. Yep. You know, she's there because she's watched you up close bleed for multiplication. <laughs> the events that you've done for all these years are the what, you know, your zeal is not for the what your zeal is for, you know, the why and your enthusiasm, you have enthusiasm about it. You have a fervor about it and that's contagious. And if you forget that and you just start putting on services, for example, that are relevant and life-changing and buttoned up and, and, and and our and and we we get we become lacking in our spiritual fervor just affects the team the church everybody. So let let me a couple of things on this, Sean. This is really good. Um, the second facet of pace in my mind now I'm I'm kind of is the is a little bit the time dimension, if you will. And now you're you're defining the zeal dimension. I love the word intensity, energy. It's more the intensity and the energy. Whereas the pace was more the time part of it. Is that, I just want to make sure I'm getting that right. I think that's fair. I think that's a great way to say it. Yeah. And so this idea of the, what I want to press into, and then I want to link it directly to leadership in the church is it, it the idea of intensity and zeal and, and energy that's there. What is the opposite of that? Cause you use the word sloth and so is sloth the opposite or, you know, what, when I think about a tyranny of the oar, I don't always think of intensity and energy and, and that's in, ba- there's this balancing act with sloth. Now we got to avoid sloth, but what is the balancing act with the intensity and the energy part? Is it really more of a, it's just the natural inclination is to, is to coast kind of yeah. thing or you know to me what what is the opposite of of joy you know if we don't bring joy to the room what do we bring you know we bring discouragement you know we bring negativity you know we bring a critical spirit you know we bring a short fuse you know all of those things you know uh, new living translation says serve the Lord enthusiastically. You know, I, I, I love that word. Just, enth- just bringing enthusiasm, you know, to the room. To me, it starts with my, my, my leadership team. You know, when I, when I walk into a meeting, I plop down and I say, all right, guys, sorry I'm late. Again, you know, what do we need to talk about today? You know, there's a difference between managing and leading, you know, and to me, that's, that's managing. You know, leading is recognizing that, Wow, I, I this team needs me. <laughs> They're taking bullets for me every day, every week. This is hard. We have spiritual bullseyes on our backsides. Like I've got to have my game face on and I've got to bring energy to the room, not in a fake kind of way, but I'm either going to, I'm, I'm going to set the temperature in the room one way or another. I'm going I'm to make it colder and more rigid and more depressing or I'm going to bring energy, enthusiasm, you know, positivity, belief, confidence, courage, 
all of those things to the room. And that's my responsibility as the leader. That's my responsibility to set that tone Hmm. and set it on Sundays too. set it on Sundays too. And during the week and with my family and everything else, I'm cognizant. You know, I'll I'll give you this illustration. You'll appreciate this. You and I've never talked about this, but I was a senior pastor of mega church. Okay. Now my church, I serve on the 940 at the 945 greeter team. Okay. I'm I'm on the, I'm a captain of the 945 greeter team, my church. I was very, very cognizant with my children who are on my team under my spiritual authority that they didn't think I only loved the church and served the church and worshiped enthusiastically in the church because I was senior pastor. I knew they were watching me. I knew I was being watched as a leader. So I'm not going to fake it, but I do live with the realization that people I have influence over are watching me. Do do I really love the church? (laughs) Do I really love to worship? Do I really love to serve? Do I really love to give? To me, that's moral authority. And I know my kids are watching me. You know, is Sean the same when he is a mega church pastor and when he's not, when he's on the stage and when he's not? And even your staff can tell the difference, frankly. As when you're hyping and fabricating on Sunday and you're not the same person during the week. That's what I'm talking about with Jesus, where he was consistent. He, was, he had this moral authority. He was consistent in his, in his posture and tone, and, and, it, and it drew people to him. So I'm just always cognizant that I, as a spiritual leader, you know, that, that I've, I've got to set the tone. I've got to help set the tone. You've got to be the culture you want to build. Um, but I'm, I'm working to do that and maintain that in my home. Henry Cloud says, I'll tell you this stat, stat quickly. Henry Cloud says, if you work outside the home, he quoted Les Parrot, I think, by the way. It, if you work outside the home, when you come home, psychologists say the first seven minutes set the tone for the entire evening in your family. First seven minutes when you get home. Mm. So what does that mean? for What's the transferable principle there for, to staff meetings? <laughs> you know. To, to, to our weekly gatherings, you know, literally within a few minutes, how you carry yourself can dictate energy for hours, days, you know, maybe weeks. So that's part of what I'm talking about being an ambassador for us, for pastors to steward that opportunity well. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. And I think what you're highlighting is, is just like the balancing act on the pace, we have to be able to turn on and off this intensity and this energy that you're talking about. I mean, we, we had a question come in, Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers. There's, you know, Jesus is, there's a zeal with him at that point. I mean, it, it feels uncharacteristic of him at that time, but it's kind of inserting energy, inserting intensity on something he's, and, and it's linked to the passion of what he's passionate about. Yeah. Um, he knew that, he was being watched too. He knew he was being watched. Right. He was sending a message. And then, and then it's the Apostle Paul, who's in his own description, he's zealous. He's zealous as a Pharisee, and he's zealous as one converted on the road to Damascus. I mean, he's zealous before and after the conversion, but he's also somebody that's paced himself through through life kind of thing. It, it seems like the real challenge, our mutual friend, Ralph Moore, um, Ralph's one of the only level five multiplication guys we found in America, over 2,200 church plants out of his church. And Ralph 
if, if you hang out with Ralph, he's just the most mild mannered. Most people don't know who he is. And uh, I was in a meeting with Ralph one time where Ralph talks about monomaniacs on a mission. He says, we have to learn to be mon-. the idea of monomaniac is it's the passion part of a focus with a passion. And uh, monomaniac is that single focus thing. And here you've got this light spoken Ralph talking about being a monomaniac on a mission. And all of a sudden, Ralph comes to life. I mean, yeah. he's he uh, and he's talking about, look, Al Qaeda has a plan to take the world and da, 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 da. And our plan's bigger, you know, and he's getting louder and more. You know, I'm thinking the table's going to get flipped over at the side of Ralph that I've never seen before. But it does seem there's a balancing act there that we I mean, part of Ralph Moore's total credibility is his pace, is his he's not a he's not the hair all the time. Go, 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 go. But he's got this methodical over time. I'll call it the monomaniac focus that, you know, the things we're talking about, he paces himself and the intensity and the energy is there and focused and applied. And I think that's our challenge in church. So as we move on to the fifth, the the fourth facet here, what's your, what's your advice though, to leaders that are listening as they're, whether it's the staff meeting, the staff, how, how do we lead the right way with the, the balancing act on the energy part of this, like what, what's the word of encouragement for how to, how to do that? Cause there's so many tensions that can pull it the other way avoidance. And, and, you know, there's, there's the shepherds who want to spend a whole lot of time preparing for sermons and not even go to the staff meetings kind of thing. So how, how do you, how do you at least take the steps to get into this balancing act? Well, I do think it's, you know, it's embracing you know, the mantle of spiritual leadership. You know, it is embracing. I hear pastors say, well, that's outside my comfort zone. Well, I don't enjoy that. And I'm like, well, so? (laughs) I mean, last I heard, we're supposed to die to ourselves. This is not about me. This is 100% about the kingdom of God and about others. So I got to get over myself. That may be outside of my comfort zone. But if I'm the leader, this is my responsibility you know, to set the tone, to set the environment. And I would say a lot of these pastors say, well, I wish I didn't have to go to staff meeting, you know, have forgotten what this whole thing's about. It's about people. You got to love people. You got to influence people. And it best happens in circles, not rows. Mm -hmm. So we got to come down out of our closet and get in the room and take responsibility to influence these people and remind and, and encourage them and get them back in the game and cheer them on, which really leads to number four, you know, encouragement, encouragement, you know, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider, reflect, ponder, ruminate on, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not give up meeting together. That's the, that's the legalistic side of it. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but why, why are we together? Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching to me, that's once again, just reminding why we're here. We are here to encourage one another. That's the primary reason I'm convinced 
it's one of the primary reasons the church exists. We can listen to sermons online. I sing better in the shower. You know, what, what, why, why, do we, why should we gather? Because we need to be encouraged. And so building a culture where people feel encouraged, if you can build a culture where people feel having, they feel like they've been encouraged every time they've been in a church environment, you, 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 you'll have to fight to, to, to build space mm. and, and multiply fast enough, you know, because people want to be a part of that. It's what the early church had going for it, man. People came out of those meetings fired up and encouraged in, in who they were and their new identity in Christ and church didn't have room for them, you know, so that that's what we've got to do is consider how we can encourage people. How do our messages encourage people? How does our worship environment encourage people? How does our small group environment, missional communities, how are we encouraging, you know, each other? And if we can, man, work on, I, I'm not a naturally encouraging person. I have to work at it. But it's my responsibility to provide that for the people that I lead and my team and, you know, all of that. So um, I, th- I think it's an important component of passion and just being an encouraging person. I was with Dino Rizzo, you know, dear friend of ours, leader of ARC. And he said, Sean, he said, I, one of the things I appreciate about you is like, I don't hear you disparaging other pastors when we're together. Mm. And I thought, man, that's, that's a good thing. You know, I'm, I'm thankful for that compliment, but I was like, it's weird that he had to point that out. Like that was weird that he, out of all the interactions he has with pastors and national ministry leaders, that it kind of jumps out at him. That there's a guy that doesn't disparage yep. and talk bad about other ministry leaders. Like, my, my goodness, let's encourage each other more. Let's cheer each other on. Let's celebrate another pastor in our town. Yep. You know, let's celebrate other churches. Let's celebrate each other. Let's, let's be an encouraging um, movement. So that's part of the heart behind passion. I, I would say, Sean, you're, you, on a serious note, you, you're one of the most encouraging people I know. Definitely in my life, you're an encourager. And I, out of the five facets we're talking about here, it's actually the hardest one for me. It's the hardest one for me. And, and so given that it's hard for me and I'm not doing it very well, and it's hard for you and you're doing it really well. So what's the practical one, two, three for you? I mean. You're, you're making the list on a three by five card of the three things you have to really be intent. Like if it's, if it's hard for you, what are the things you're having to do to overcome it, to, to make it be something that you're actually good at practicing? Well, first of all, in my marriage, you know, I've been married 28 years, you know, Trish and I've been to marriage counseling three or four times. We have the same Myers-Briggs profile. You know, I decided I can be critical about the things that, that I don't like my, about my wife, or I can celebrate her for the ways that she compliments me and the things that I see in her. And I'm going to out compliment her. She's never going to beat me, you know? And so I've, I've really just kind of built systems of care and encouragement into my, you know, into my natural rhythm with all the teams I lead. We have like, we maintain what I call a 411 list. Remember when you, when you used to call on the phone? You and I are old enough to remember this. You could dial 411 and get information on any business. So I've got, you know, birthdays and anniversaries and favorite snacks, favorite movies, you know, and we have a kind of a system in place whereby certain triggers, you know, cause me to reach out to them and, 
you know, and then I'm always looking for my friends and leaders to, to, what is it that they do great? And why do I love being around them? And I want to call that out. I want to call that out. And part of it is me recognizing just how little, you know, I get it and others get it. Like, man, we des- I, I just think it's one of the missing ingredients in, in the church today. You know, let us not give up meeting together somewhere and having to do it, but encouraging one another. So to me, it's like an obedience issue. It's not like, wait till you feel like it, you know, or you think about it. Like I need to build this into my life as a, as a practice of obedience in my life. So I just, I work at it and I've built some systems around it. And I'm always trying to provide that for the teams that I lead and my friends. And cause I, I just think it's important, you know, and of course we live in a day to now where pastors are taking their freaking lives, you know, and that troubles me. And I don't, I don't want, I don't ever want to be the last conversation I ever had with a man and not, or a woman and them not having felt encouraged by me. Hmm. Like I, I live with that realization. I live with that realization. We had a television news anchor in our city, three young boys in Birmingham this week commit suicide. He was on the evening news the night before. I'm like, man, what in the world? You know, how was he that low? And that desperate, nobody saw it coming. And the next morning, <laughs> I greeted at the doors of our church. And I said, how many people feel that way inside? We don't even know about it. Hmm. You know, and there's like a new sense. And that's really, what I think, what the writer of Hebrews was saying. All the more as you see the day approaching, like our time is short. So whatever you do, encourage people, you know. I think it's important. So I work at it. I just work at it, man. And I've gotten better at it. I have gotten better at it. I got a long way to go. Ask my team, ask my coaches, but I've gotten way better at it. I've gone back and apologized to old team members in eras where I feel like I really sucked at it, you know, and because I've I've grown since then and it's encouraging. So I, I think the fifth facet, the fifth and final, we're going to talk about Sean, uh, for anyone who's overwhelmed, brings a little bit of hope back into this equation. And, and what I mean by that is um, it's easy to get overwhelmed on each of these of the vision part and the pace part and the zeal part. And this idea of I got to be intentional to encourage and build systems to do it. And I'm left after those four thinking, man, this is a whole lot of stuff you got to do for passion. And I get to the fifth one, which is focus. And so... To unpack that a little bit. Is that what helps bring a little bit of hope here that this isn't like passions everywhere and everything? And what, what exactly do you mean by focus? I think so. I mean, I think you're doing it. You and I have talked about this offline. I mean, you said I've got too many things in my boat, you know, right now, and I'm being diligent and intentional and I'm getting coaching and I'm getting some things out of my boat because I can feel <laughs> the fact that I got too many things in my boat. You are living this message out right now, aren't you? Why why don't you just be candid for two minutes about that with everybody? Because you're living this right now. Yeah. Yeah. Part of why Sean and I are going to talk in an upcoming episode on this need for an extended break is I, uh, 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 a friend of mine, Linda Buford, just said to me recently, she made a comment about uh, me having too much stuff in my boat. The picture of you know, I picture a cargo ship with all kinds of containers and there's just too many of them. And what happens? It either tips over or it sinks kind of thing. And 
the the challenge that I have is probably what a lot of people have. If if you labeled each one of those cargo containers that are on the ship, and here here's the problem in my life. One of those is diamonds, and one of them is rubies, and one of them is gold, and another is silver. And I, I, it's hard to come to the container that's garbage. And so that idea of deciding, okay, there's too many containers floating. I'm trying to balance too many things. What do I unpack from the ship? So that's what Sean's referring to. That's the process I'm working through right now. It's, it's literally in my journal, a picture of a ship with cargo containers on it. And I'm going to be working through, it's part of going to be my extended break for a while. I'm going to work through what needs to be on this boat and what doesn't. And uh, what's important. So I guess that's the focus that we're talking about here. Well, you know, practically speaking, I think pastors are trying to do too much. You know, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. You know, you could replace that word yoke with expectations. Take my expectations on you. I think pastors put a lot of self-imposed expectations on themselves. They allow church members, you know, to put expectations on them that you've got to come to every event, that you've got to be available all the time to everybody. And like, that's not from Jesus. Those are not commands from Jesus. (laughs) Those are self-imposed expectations or imposed by. And he said, if you do that, you're going to wear yourself out. You know, the religious leaders of the day had placed unfair expectations on the people and they were worn out. And he said, no, take take my expectations on. Here's what I expect. You love God, love people. (laughs) He boiled it down to two simple things. You know, so it's simple. I tell guys, you got too many direct reports. You're preaching too many Sundays a year. Most pastors I know at small, mid-sized churches, they're what I call overexposed. (laughs) You need to preach more during the seasons of intensity and build a teaching team and take a chill pill in the, in the weeks where you're not going to have as many guests, historically speaking, and you can sustain this. You know, you need to do less, fill up your calendar less, you know, and focus on four or five things that provide the greatest return on invest. We help pastors build a stop doing list, you know, after we've performed a calendar audit. <laughs> it's a very interesting exercise, you know, to just help them offload things and and get get focused just on a few things and it's amazing when you get focused on those just a few things how energizing Mm. and and more of a passionate person you become when you get focused on a few things instead of being so scattered it's amazing how it all comes together you know sean i think you're sparking a thought here um i've got a theory that I, i think is right um if you if you think pre pandemic most pastors, most church leaders, they're in a rhythm of understanding expectations and what they need to do to deliver their expectation. And along comes the pandemic, and all of a sudden, now you're functioning in a way that it, you not only don't know how, you can't really deliver the expectation. And so there's a little bit of a churn there with I can't deliver the normal expectation. And now with light at the end of the tunnel coming out of the pandemic, you get this whammy of not knowing where things are going to land after the pandemic. 
which means not knowing what the new expectation is going to be. And so it's not only I couldn't deliver the expectation in a different environment. Now, I'm, I, as much as I would like the environment to go back to the stability of knowing the expectation and being able to deliver that expectation, now there's the chaos of the uncertainty of not knowing if things will return to that stability that I knew of the expectation. So the, the theory is this, I think part of the you know, record numbers of people just struggling in ministry with mental health issues and stress and anxiety and different things, I think part of it is, is this expectation thing that, that, that we're talking about here. So, And I think there's power in saying, you know what, like, I can't control all that, but I, the vision hasn't changed for our church in the process. COVID didn't change the vision. Yeah. COVID didn't change my need to live in rhythm. You know, COVID didn't change my need to be enthusiastic. COVID didn't change my need to be an encourager. You know, or fo- stay, get focused and stay focused on the things that can make, make the difference. We get in ministry, we get fired up about one person coming to know Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then we spend the next 50 years of our vocational ministry if we're not careful focusing on the ones that aren't there. Yeah. You know, and there's a great power of like bringing all that back down to simplicity, you know, of the gospel. And so the gospel hasn't changed. Our vision hasn't changed. <laughs> the, the call hasn't changed. Let's just let's just get focused on that. Let's get back focused on people again and on the Great Commission and whether or not we have services and whether or not everybody comes back or not. That's really up to Jesus. But, you know, we're going to get focused on what we can control by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's a lot of power around. I think I think church people are hungry for that, are hungry for that right now. So and maybe lost people too. <laughs> maybe lost people too. Well, Sean, hey, this has been a great conversation, and I enjoyed it. Um, you mentioned the your book, "Be Mean About Vision." Anything else at Courage to Lead right now in, in this topic of passion and just things going on? Any any other resources? Anything coming up? Anything you just want to you know say about what you guys are doing, or that might uh, even just be if out? they need you know in this in this post pandemic you know, environment, trying to figure out what to do next. You know, we, we help guys kind of help, help them establish their new priorities and look at where they're spending their time. Look at their. Is that one of the significant things you're seeing happening, right? Is that one of the things people are reaching out to? I need to establish a new rhythm. It is a new rhythm. I don't know what it looks like. And I got to figure out like how I spend my time, where, what I need to be doing with my time, you know, what our team needs to be working on. You know, so just helping a team sort of reset and establish a new priority is a big part of what we do in our coaching. Great. Yeah. Well, at Exponential, it's kind of ironic that uh, our theme year of 2020, before the pandemic hit, hit now, you know, we plan a year before, but 2020 was supposed to be all about the theme together. And so, we held our big Orlando event a little over a year ago and got the together theme in. But our entire rest of the year programming, including our regionals that were supposed to be on together, uh, ended up having to be shifted and delayed and we didn't get to do them. So guess what? This fall, starting in September, we're going to do the together theme. We're really going to get this together again. So the big message, you know, to the exponential community right now is 
hey, we're emerging from this pandemic. It is time to be together again. So we're going to do five regional events this fall, uh, D.C., the Bay Area, Southern California, Houston and Chicago. Uh, we'll also be doing a bunch of roundtable events, but you're going to want to latch on if you're listening, watching right now to one of these events. We're going to be back together live again. Uh, speakers like J.D. Greer, uh, Albert Tate, Ed Stetzer, you know, it's a full lineup of, uh, of national speakers here with uh, programming. So don't miss out on, on that. Um, I'm crawling out of your holes and shaking hands and meeting new people and hearing, learning that you're not the only one with the struggles that you're having. Like that's tremendously encouraging right now for leadership teams. So I would just say, pastors, don't stay isolated this next year. You've got to get out of your shell, get out of your county, <laughs> you know, go connect with some other pastors, understand they're undergoing the same sufferings you are. You're not alone. And um, there is tremendously, there's tremendous power in that. So, it's going to be interesting, Sean, just the psychology of, of not just relative to events, but people getting back into the norm again. You know, this summer that we're in now, record vacation travels. I mean, it's going to be a record year of vacation travels just with people having been bottled up. But it's interesting when it comes to the like Christian conferencing and things for the fall, that that's yet to be determined. What, like, what does it look like to, for, for Christian leaders to get back into the normal travel rhythm? Everyone I talk to is ready to. It's just like, what's the trigger point look like for it to happen? So, um I think we need it more than even we recognize to get yeah. together. Well, I I tell you what, my first flight after getting the second vaccine, I I I underestimated being locked up for a year. I was on the plane and I, I've never been in prison, so I don't know what it feels like to get set free <laughs> from prison, but it had to be what it feels like. I literally flying on the plane the first time thought, oh my goodness. I just want to book a flight to San Francisco and then fly to then fly to LA and then fly to Phoenix and fly to Denver and fly to Never Chicago. thought we'd say that, right? Just because I could kind of thing. And it uh, there is just something to that freedom. And and I think this neat I don't think we realize what you just said, how important it is, the relational part of being back together again and just getting back at it. So yeah, so get registered for one of these regionals, guys. Don't be a stranger. You know, we're better together. We are better together, and you are you're an easier target, isolated and alone. So let's do this this year, and Exponential can be part of it. All right. We'll see you soon, Sean. Love you, man. See you soon. Love you too. Thanks.